welcome to Potter Revisited, our new Harry Potter podcast. Our only Harry Potter podcast. I feel like as a lot of people in COVID-19 times, you run out of things to do, so we decided to start a podcast in probably the worst time for Harry Potter fans. Yeah, the absolute worst, but I feel like it's a service to those around us that we will now talk to each other about Harry Potter because I'm pretty sure we would drive everyone else in our lives nuts. <laughs> so that's definitely happened. This is a public service to those we love. So basically our podcast is that we want to reread the series and talk about it and we decided to make it a podcast. Yeah, so we're going to go sort of chapter by chapter with each chapter being an episode and we're going to talk about what happens in the chapter but also theories, opinions we have. We're going to probably do a whole lot of uh, shit talking. <laughs> Definitely. We have a lot of opinions. We have a lot of different opinions. A lot of different opinions, which should make for some excellent uh, podcasts. One would hope. If we agreed on everything, this would be awful. <laughs> That'd be boring. Yeah. We try to introduce ourselves. So I am Tori. I am a 20-something, and I have been in the television industry. I'm Shay. I am a 20-something that is younger than her 20-something. And I have a degree in psychology, which I use for nothing. I uh, previously worked for a hockey analytics company, and right now I'm in school for network administration. And by in school, I mean sitting on my couch and poking buttons on my computer for a couple hours a day. Love that COVID-19 e-learning. Love that. So Love we probably that. should say that we know each other. We have been friends for a very long time, but we are doing this podcast um, in different provinces. Yeah, because, you know... If people who do podcasts together can also do them apart, then we can do it apart and never be together. I think it makes it more fun. Yeah. I think we should talk about some of our favorites in the Harry Potter series. So I'll start that. My favorite character is Hermione. I've always felt very close to Hermione, even though I'm nowhere near as smart as she was. I feel like maybe when I read the series, I just identified with her because she was the only girl. But going forth, Hermione's just like, my girl, my Hermione. And my favorite book is Prisoner of Azkaban. It's the first book I read, and I just love that book so much. I always go back to it. I feel like it has a lot of um, like plot points that really stuck with me because I was 10 when I read it. And just, I love, really love Sirius Black, too. So it's my favorite book. And my house is Slytherin. I had on Pottermore gave me Slytherin when I thought for most of my life that I was Hufflepuff. But I have really like identified with it and took it in stride. So it'll be interesting to read these books with all the Slytherin biases. <laughs> okay, uh, well, my favorite character is Snape. Boo! I know, it is a strange choice and a favorite character, especially growing up when I was a little girl. I remember my sixth grade teacher looking at me like I had literally just declared my life ambition was to rob banks and live in a treehouse surrounded by a shark-filled moat when I said that he was my favorite. But he just is, and he always has been. I find him such an interesting, complex, multi-layered onion of a man. Like, liking him isn't about thinking he's good or bad, because he's kind of a dick. I know that. But it's just, like, the ability for people to have such a big impact on the world, despite not being perfect or not being entirely moral. He wasn't the main hero. He was often not that nice. He made all these mistakes, and he, was, he behaved selfishly. Yet in the end, he always ended up doing things that impacted the fate of the wizarding world so much. It made me really optimistic that... I could do things despite my flaws and also have an impact on the world. I mean, I was never as selfless as Harry. I was never as loyal as Ron. I was never as smart as Hermione. But I was less flawed than Snape. And he sure did do some pretty awesome things. <laughs> 
also with my long dark hair and his long dark hair and the fact that we both wore all black probably were both interested in the dark arts my little emo heart fluttered you know and it sounded like my chemical romance or early panic of the disco so i just found him incredibly relatable in that way but also i'm not evil <laughs> well maybe i'm a little evil but it's fine uh, my favorite book was the sixth um not just because of all the delicious snape bits but it was such a good book i loved how much of voldemort's past we got i liked everything about that book except for all the parts they put in the movie yeah i was gonna say good book really bad movie yeah the worst <laughs> uh, my house is also a slytherin i always knew i was a slytherin I think I liked the idea of being a good guy in a house that was mostly bad guys. Like, little me was fully confident I could fend off any emotional and social pressure from my peers. I had faith in my stubbornness, and I just really wanted that challenge, I guess. Now you got a Slytherin tattoo before you went to university, which is pretty cool, on the back of your neck. Actually, I got my Slytherin tattoo when I was at university, and I had a... Uh, doctor's note for the very important appointment I had to get a needle that day. <laughs> it was multiple needles, and it had nothing to do with my health, but it's fine. How we got into Harry Potter should be an interesting story. So, we're definitely younger than other Harry Potter fans. Like, the first book came out in 98. I wasn't born until 94. Shana wasn't born until 95. So, we were definitely a bit behind the eight ball, but that's just because we were babies. It's not my fault. <laughs> Yeah, so the first two books were already out by like 2002, so I didn't actually read the books to probably 2004. In my, in my class in grade three, which probably like around 2003, I think, we read Harry Potter's our class novel, because the movies were already out, so people were pretty into it. And yeah, so it got me really into the series. We, fought, we watched the first, I made my parents take me to see the second movie, because that had just come out, and my friends and I would play Harry Potter at recess, so... But so then when I was, my mom bought the books, but I wasn't really into reading back then. But uh, to put off cleaning my room, I found the third book in my room and I decided to start reading it. So I had an excuse why I wasn't cleaning my room because I was reading. My mom was really into us reading. But then I got really into it. I couldn't stop. So I was probably 10 at the time. And then, yeah, so I got really invested. And I actually met one of my friends, we were both in Girl Guides together, but we weren't really close, but we were both reading the same Harry Potter book, so we'd talk about it sometimes. And that's how we became friends, and we're still friends today, and she named her first daughter Luna. You named your cats Sirius and Luna. <laughs> and I named my pets after Harry Potter characters. <laughs> Which is hilarious, because your dog is such a Neville, but his name isn't. Yeah, I wrote the series kind of backwards. I read Prisoner of Azkaban, and then Goblet of Fire, and then I think I read Or the Phoenix, that had just come out around the time but then when I was waiting for Half Blood Prince I was like oh I never read the first two books but I saw the movies because that's how I always thought like I watched the movies so I went back and read them I'm like oh wow they're actually different but yeah when I was 12 my mom let me go to the midnight release for Half Blood Prince which is really exciting because I was not allowed to be up that late usually but I read that book in three days because we went on vacation and my dad wouldn't let me take it anywhere and I was only allowed to read it in the living room and I wasn't allowed to keep it with me when I went to bed because I had developed a habit when I read Harry Potter books that I would like sneak and read and my parents used to get mad at me because my mom was worried about my eyes because I wear glasses and then I just read in the dark so I didn't know or I'd go into the washroom and it's crazy to think like I finished the whole of the books by the time I was 12 so it was just like but only like three years of my life that I was like reading these books but I'm almost 27 and I'm still here. It's so strange to think because it feels like such a huge part of my life but also I read them all so quickly and so close together kind of 
all the books were pretty much out by the time we started reading them because we were so young but you think you're so young and you're reading these books that basically it's part mm-hmm. of your development yeah I still feel like I aged with them somehow I think that like we were like a lot younger than technically the books were but we definitely you definitely still feel that you like grew up with it because then by the time we were reading them the movies were starting to come out like every summer so it just became this whole fandom thing how did you get into Harry Potter yeah um, well, I, I learned to read the summer after third grade. <laughs> I had been very much not a reader up until that point, and when kids in my classes were reading normal age-appropriate books, I was sent out into the hall to relearn to read normal books, like small word-for-word, my dog is cute books, because I was so behind on my reading. And then the summer after third grade, I just read The Lord of the Rings, I which is a ridiculous first book. <laughs> And uh, I don't know. I have no idea how that happened, how I went from not being able to read to reading The Lord of the Rings, but I did. And I loved it, and I wanted to read more fantasy, so the next series I read was some of the Harry Potter books. I loved the magic, and I loved that in Harry Potter, kids going on adventures were my age, or close to my age. Because Lord of the Rings, they're elves and hobbits and whimsical and kings, and I was like, I am not really any of them, but I could be this awkward kid who's in school. (laughs) That could be me. It was really exciting to read about kids going on magical adventures. I could relate with Hermione because she had terrible hair and Ron because he struggled with glasses. It felt like they were really big stories, but they were also relatable just regarding what their everyday lives were like. Uh, I related to Luna. I found her such an oddball and it made me feel more confident in being an oddball. And even things like the Golden Trio and how they had umbrage, it reminded me of our fifth grade teacher. You know, and there was so many real life things in my life that I could relate to that how they were expressed in Harry Potter and uh, it definitely led me to reading in a more attentive way I learned from Harry Potter that sometimes the smallest detail will end up being important later on and so I definitely have become a much closer and more analytical reader so English teachers everywhere rejoice I definitely feel like a lot of people with uh, Harry Potter it really helps them get into reading because I don't think I really read before Harry Potter because I was always put in the lower groups for reading because I hated reading out loud and was very shy growing up, painfully shy, and they always made you read out loud. But I, so I was always put in like lower reading groups, but like things I could read. My mom actually didn't think I could read the Harry Potter books. I wanted to do it for my book talk and she's like, you should do it an easier book pretty much. And I was like, I can read this. And she didn't really realize how much I got into it until I made my poster and I like had all these facts and all these like, I all the characters and the, I knew what the plot was and she's like, oh wow. So yeah, definitely open reading, because I read a lot. I don't read as much as I used to, but definitely growing up, I was like, I read all the time. Me too. Over the summer, when I don't have things to do, and I'm like at my cottage and stuff, I just go through books so quickly. Nice. Maybe because there's no internet (laughs) up there. Take away my Wi-Fi, and I will just go through books, like two books a day. I also think reading out loud should not be a reflection of how capable one is of reading, because reading out loud is awful and hard (laughs) and stressful. The education system, not doing things right. Gosh, who's reading this? Albus Dumbledore? Speaking of Albus Dumbledore, let's jump right into our chapter discussion for this episode. Today we are discussing chapter one of Philosopher's Stone, The Boy Who Lives, aka Headmaster Abandons Baby. So one thing I like to point out about the Harry Potter books is I like so much how characters are name dropped before they're actually relevant to the story. So in this chapter, we have Madame Palmfrey and we have Sirius, and Sirius doesn't even come in until Prisoner of Azkaban. So he's already mentioned in the very first book, in the very first chapter, which is crazy. 
We also get a little bit of foreshadowing about the Deluminator, which ends up being kind of important, and even that Voldemort isn't really scary for Albus Dumbledore is kind of insinuated. Mm -hmm. One of the other things I thought was kind of interesting in the way that this chapter is written, and the fact that it's not written from Harry's perspective, sort of, is that you really see another character in a more particular way than you see characters at any other point throughout the series. And I find that because so much attention is on Vernon for this chapter, you get to see such a really interesting stark juxtaposition between him and Albus Dumbledore, because they really show you how Vernon is such a bland human. I mean, they talk about how he intentionally chooses his most boring tie, how he hates funny business, and then they introduce Albus, and he's talking about candy, he's wearing silly clothes. I find this early comparison really is beneficial to the overall discussion of father figures for Harry Potter and like how different the people he chooses as father figures are compared to the people who are supposed to actually be his father figures. Yeah, he definitely, in the series, he gravitates towards people that are as far from Dursley's as possible. And Harry really goes for the whimsy because I feel like he has this whole normalcy and bland Dursley stuff pushed on him all growing up and then he gets these really crazy characters coming to his life and he's just like awake for the first time it could also be a reflection of the fact that he still has such a limited level of social socialization That's because true. as far as he knows everyone who has anything in common with the dursleys might be just like the dursleys because that's the only thing he knows is people who are such a small sort of sample size of understanding of people so he clings to whoever is the most different from the Dursleys because they're least likely to have similar traits to them. So the timeline, James and Lily are murdered on Halloween, and it presumably people find out Voldemort has been defeated. So they're celebrating in the morning. Yeah, I find it interesting timeline-wise because we know that when Harry is brought to Privet Drive, Hagrid brings him on Sirius's bike. And then he... Hagrid got back on Sirius's bike and left to return it to Sirius. I don't think he just took it because I don't think Sirius told him I don't need it anymore. Or he re- he meant Hagrid mentions that in Prisoner of Azkaban. So we're presuming at that moment Sirius had decided he was going after Peter. He made the connection and he's like, you know what? I'm gonna either I'm gonna die or I'm gonna something's gonna happen to me. But he's just like, take care, of Harry. So we're presuming after this is when Sirius goes to confront Peter. Yeah, I guess. But you'd think that if he saw Hagrid at all, he would have mentioned something. Like, hey, by the way, it wasn't me. Like, you know what I mean? If he's seeing Hagrid between the death and going after Peter, that might be a good opportunity to casually mention. Sirius is just like, we know later on in the book, Sirius is very reckless and very stubborn and kind of like, not a very mature character. But I think at this moment, he's just kind of like suffered a really great loss and I don't think he was thinking straight, like, even straight for Sirius. I feel like he was just kind of, like, in revenge mode, and he wasn't thinking about the long term. We know Sirius doesn't usually think of the long term. I mean, he's very much a Gryffindor in all of the pros and cons of what goes along with that. So I suppose it is sort of the most Gryffindor thing to just run off to do the thing when it would solve you so many of your problems in the future and prevent so much trouble if you just stopped for a second and said hey we could go we could talk forever about why wouldn't they do this instead it would have solved all these things but then we'd have no plot so yeah but if he'd literally stopped for five minutes and said hey big guy 
Peter was Secret Keeper and I'm going to go find him and kick his ass. That would have solved, like, all of book three wouldn't have happened, which I get book three had to happen and it's great. But it's just one of those things where, like, I'm so, I, I couldn't be a Gryffindor. I don't know how people like that live. <laughs> like, just not thinking things through at all before doing them. Yes, it's do first, think after, and my anxiety will not let me do that. It's like what you don't think about every single possibly outcome before you do it. That's not something people, all people do. I do. I don't understand. I don't know. People who like make it up as they go along sometimes just, I don't get it. <laughs> no, cannot compute doing that. So I think rereading the book as an adult, we are confronted with how kind of a terrible person Dumbledore is, which we will probably discuss more as we go through the whole series. But this is our first introduction to Albus as a character. So it's kind of like what our first impressions were as we were first reading it to compare it to maybe now. I know now I have a lot more questions about like Dumbledore's motives, why he did the things he did. Why Dumbledore? Why? But as a kid, Dumbledore, yeah, Dumbledore's just like, he seems like a really interesting character when you first read about him. Yeah, I think he's described in a way early on that really fits with the classic depictions of Merlin both with how they show him as being distinctively powerful, but also as being like really quirky and lighthearted, which I like because it's, I mean, there's literary precedent for it. It makes him feel a little bit familiar. I think it definitely stands out too, because you we know the Dursleys, and then we know McGonagall, she comes across as a very like strict kind of like, no-nonsense kind of character. And then there's Hagrid, who is a bit of emotional. So you kind of have the, like the mix of like... Um, these wizard characters who we are just sort of learning about. Yeah. I also think that they do a pretty good job of defining the character or like sort of building up what Albus Dumbledore is, even in this chapter. Like, I mean, the way they uh, talk about him as being more of an optimistic or light character, especially early on. I mean, obviously that changes later. And he's also shown as being very trusting. I mean, he says he would trust Hagrid with his life. And they also properly depict how dominant a character Dumbledore is by the way he talks about everything with such a sense of authority, like saying it is the best place for him when regarding Harry and where he's being left. Yeah, despite how silly he comes off in the chapter and lighthearted, you know that he's in charge the way people listen to him. And it sets the precedent that Albus's word is always going to be accepted. So what he thinks is the right choice must be the most right choice. That's... The choice that they're dealing with, yeah. Which, regardless of the fact that that is not often the truth, that is how it is treated in the series. As, as we grow older, we learn that you either live to see your hero become a villain. Or you live to see your hero become Dumbledore. <laughs> Dumbledore as a villain would have been a fun twist, though. <laughs> What's worse? Hmm. Well, getting into it, I'm just, like, reading this now as, like, almost in my 30s. I'm like, was Dumbledore naive, leaving Harry with the Dursleys? And did he actually expect they'd actually raise him well? Because Dumbledore has known James and Lily for a long time, like, while they're in school, in the Order, along with the other Marauders, Sirius, Peter, and Remus. And wouldn't he have known that Lily's relationship with Petunia is estranged and is just, like, Harry a means to an end? He just needed to get him out of the way until he was useful again. It's just like, I can't imagine Dumbledore is that naive. And I just feel like at this point of the series, he doesn't really care. But Harry's a person. Harry's not a person. It's just this thing he needs to keep safe until it's actually useful to him. 
which is once he's able to enter the wizarding world. Because I feel like there are so many other places he could have gone and they could have made it work. But he's just like, didn't really care about how Harry was going to grow up with these characters. I think in the forefront of his mind, he thought it was the best choice because Harry would be safe there because of his mother's magic curse. And also because it's the last place Death Eaters would look because who puts the future of the wizarding world with a bunch of muggles? But I think maybe on like a subconscious level, Dumbledore, who has a whole bunch of family issues of his own and is sort of estranged from his brother, might have subconsciously been thinking that like Lily and Petunia had that relationship where they weren't close. So he can like sort of deal with his own feelings of lost family by fixing Lily and Petunia's by having Petunia grow to love Harry. Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense. He's vicariously trying to fix that void. I just don't know. Maybe I'm, yeah. I get that Dumbledore had, like, not a great relationship with his family, and maybe he wished that he had paid, he had been more attentive to his family when his parents died. But he just, I feel like, I don't feel like it was more, like, a choice about, like, what would be better for Harry. It was more like, what would be better for Dumbledore. But maybe I'm just very cynical. Yeah, I don't think it was conscious that he was trying to sort of deal with his own family issues using Harry. But I think that might have played a bit of a part into him being so insistent on this particular path rather than looking at the alternatives. Dumbledore says the whole reason for Harry living with Privet Drive is that, like, yes, obviously he has Petunia's protection because Lily sacrificed herself, so it's through blood. But also because he didn't want him to live with a wizarding family because he didn't want him to grow up with all that, like, fame and everything and going to his head. But I was like, does that really stand up? I felt like all purebloods are connected through marriage, so... Couldn't, Harry couldn't have like some distant relative that's like related to him through James' side, and I'm just like, there were so many. I feel like so many with families that would have done a good job raising Harry, and he would have been loved and appreciated. But you know, that wasn't a high priority for Dumbledore. I guess maybe it was like a specific um, amount of blood, like his closest blood relative would be his aunt. Or maybe the blood curse, the blood curse, (laughs) Lily's evil curse that saved Harry's life. Uh, Maybe the blood magic, because Lily was the one who did the spell, it had to be a relative of Lily. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it had to be Lily's because it was like, it had to be her closest blood relative was Petunia. But I'm saying even like, if we, like, was it worth the protection for Harry to be like abused for 11 years? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) That's why I was saying, like, if he had been like, with, like, a distant relative of, like, James, because we know, like, the Weasleys and everyone are all, like, connected because the purebloods are all connected by marriage and whatever. Just, like, the real royal family. So, I mean, that could have been someone he could have gone with that, like, wouldn't have probably emotionally scarred him. Yeah, I feel like Dumbledore just looks at every problem as sort of one-dimensional and, like, that dimension he addresses and he doesn't see that there's other layers to it. So he's like, how do we keep Harry physically safe? We put him with a blood relative. He doesn't even contemplate that there's, like, emotional stability and emotional safety and, like, the ability to grow properly and establish healthy relationships Dumbledore just doesn't see that he sees the main issue is Harry could be killed we'll put him where he's least likely to be killed all of the problems are solved yeah like what happened if Patina like didn't take him and he just left him a letter and he's like yeah here's your nephew we have to take care of him now and then what if they were like nah we'll just call the orphanage or we'll drop him off at a church <laughs> yeah Miss Fig <laughs> yeah Mrs. Fig I'm really interested because we know Harry was a horcrux at the end of the series so I was wondering if Dumbledore knew this early on 
or had any idea that Harry could have been a Horcrux. I don't think Dumbledore is even close to really thinking about the Horcrux problem at this point. Because even in his own sort of words, he says in this chapter that Voldemort had powers. As in had powers that most people can't imagine or something like that. Which implies that he believes Voldemort no longer has those powers. Like it's past tense. Which means I think in this chapter he thinks there's a good possibility Voldemort is really dead. And he hasn't really taken the time Mm -hmm. to look into horror crooks and stuff. Because it's been like 24 hours. Yes. Maybe he thought still a little bit that maybe Voldemort wasn't gone forever, but he didn't seem very confident. Well, he did say that he doesn't think, he's very always very skeptical that Voldemort wasn't gone. He knew he could come back. I just don't think he knew how. He just knew, like, he wasn't gone. So another thing we have is we're introduced to Hagrid, and we know that Dumbledore trusts Hagrid a lot. So I was wondering, why does he trust Hagrid so much, and why did he assign him to get Harry? I was wondering, did he suspect they know that there was a spy in the order did he suspect Sirius because Sirius is Harry's godfather so Sirius did come to get Harry before Hagrid stopped him also why didn't he go and get Harry himself like this is like this really important child and he just kind of was like making his like army go and like handle stuff and he just like hangs out and writes the letter to the Dursleys classic Albus Dumbledore puppet master he delegates (laughs) yep it's a managerial position Oh my goodness. I think when it comes to choosing Hagrid for things, I feel like A, Dumbledore knows he can trust him because Hagrid feels so indebted to Dumbledore on top of also deeply respecting him and admiring him. I also think that Hagrid is an unexpected choice, which is often why he's the safest choice. Because if the Death Eaters are less likely to expect the child to be sent to safety with a part giant who got kicked out of school when he was still a child you know Mm -hmm. so it's kind of an unlikely person so they're more likely to watch people like Remus Lupin to see what they're doing and if they have Harry than they are to watch Hagrid because his kind of strength isn't really the kind of strength that the Death Eaters can understand yeah because even McGonagall was kind of questioning trusting Hagrid with this important of like admission but Hagrid is Dumbledore's yes man, so I feel like he know- he trusts that his loyalty would never yeah. waver. As long as he's not drunk. I, mean, I feel like <laughs> Dumbledore has risky, kind of risky, like, because Hagrid gets himself in trouble, but he knows his loyalty won't waver, so. And also just another why Dumbledore moment. Did Dumbledore really expect Harry to be raised by the Dursleys? Well, because I know in Half-Blood Prince... He kind of tells them off for not raising Harry as a second son, and Harry's so disappointed in them. But I'm like, did you really expect that to happen? He did no research, or he did the bare minimum. Yeah, McGonagall watched them for, like, the whole day, and she's like, these are terrible people. Like, what are you doing? This might be one of those moments where it's just like, if people listened to Minerva McGonagall more, everyone's lives would have been better. The all-knowing, all-wise Minerva McGonagall. If Sirius had come to Dumbledore rather than going after Peter, would Dumbledore have let Sirius raise Harry, or would he still have been like, he has to go with the Dursleys? I mean, I think Sirius would have tried. He would have yelled at Dumbledore and probably had a bit of a... Well, yeah, because, like, he is his yeah. godfather, and that must be, like, and that's probably in their will. But I just feel like with Dumbledore, that interferes with his plans, his whole plan. The chief wizard of the Wismagot. Yeah, Yeah, I feel like Dumbledore would override anyone's will and no one would question it. 
Uh, I also don't think Sirius is a good choice. Like, I know that, like, he would have been way nicer to Harry and actually loved him, but Sirius is, would be a terrible actual parental figure. Like, he just isn't responsible enough. Yeah, I don't think Sirius would be, like, a father. I don't, I feel like he probably would have stepped up to the plate, because we're, when we know Sirius, we know Sirius with, like, the, the severe trauma of everything he's been through, but I feel at that point, I feel like he could have stepped up, maybe not be, like, a father, but definitely, like, an older brother, and I feel like... Yeah, I feel like... Sirius would be a good part of Harry's life if he wasn't the one who was responsible for Harry, but, like, played the role of, like, uncle or cousin. I definitely feel like it'd probably be Remus, too, because I know that before James Lee were murdered, they both thought each other was the spy, so they had a falling out until they realized later on that it was Peter. So I feel like if they both knew that it was Peter, I feel like they both could have raised Harry as, like... Maybe not father figures, but like yeah, Lupin being the responsible one. Yeah, one being more responsible. But I feel like, I feel like Sirius probably wouldn't be as responsible. But I definitely think he'd step up to the plate of being like, not a role model, but like looking after. Yeah, I think Sirius would be more of like a big brother type. Like he would come and hang out with Harry and have dinner with them one or two nights a week, and then once a month when Lupin's out werewolfing, he'll have a slumber party. At, Harry will have a slumber party at Sirius's house, and they'll stay up all night eating ice cream for dinner and making blanket forts and, like, all those fun things. Well, it's like, you never know, like, how well you can do something until you're forced in that situation. Like, there's times where, like, you think you're you're forced into a situation that you're too young to deal with, but you kind of, like, I feel like the series we know in the series probably couldn't have done it, but I feel like if at 21 years old, if Sirius was given that situation, I feel like he would have, like, worked towards, like, actually being able to handle it. Like, obviously, the Sirius, and se- later in the series, like, he could after being what he'd been through he couldn't have done it but if he had been given the chance before everything i feel like he could have done it yeah why couldn't they have just found a nice hufflepuff to raise harry i mean that would have solved all of the problems they'd raise him to be modest and kind and also they wouldn't gryffindor accidentally throw him off cliffs or you know like safer physically than any gryffindor would raise him and less cocky than any other house would raise him i'm telling you we need to find some adoptive Hufflepuff parents. That would have been the solution. Yeah, Hufflepuff and Ravenclaw, very underrepresented in at least the earlier, earlier books. Yeah, they're, uh, they deserve better. And so, and so does Slytherin, but in a different way. We get attention, we just only get bad attention. So knowing what we know about Dumbledore, do we believe he acted in the best interests of Harry as a person, or was he acting within the greater good? I don't think because... he ever acted in yeah. Harry's interest as a person. <laughs> So we know that he says later on in the series that he became he became conflicted because he started to care about Harry. But I'm like, did you actually? Because I don't really think, at least early on, he really saw Harry's person. It was just this thing that was for the greater good. And like, I think maybe he started to see Harry kind of like a character in a book, which he is, but not for Dumbledore. He was sort of like, oh, this character does this and this and hangs out with that person. Oh, I kind of ship that. So he's sitting there being like, ooh, maybe Hermione and Harry Potter. So he's like invested and wants things to happen, but not enough to actually do anything. <laughs> like when you're watching a hockey game on TV and you're yelling at the ref to make a certain call and you're saying that, but you know you're not changing anything. Yeah. So well, Dumbledore says that he Voldemort has powers that he will never have. So what powers do we think? And then Minerva says... Only because you are too noble to use them. Yeah. So what powers? Is it the Horcruxes? Or some kind of dark stuff? I always thought maybe it was the power to kill. Because, because like, 
that's something Voldemort does, but Dumbledore doesn't. But then I think that Dumbledore very much has the power to kill. He just wouldn't use the killing curse. It's like any kind of those unforgivable um, curses. Like when Harry first tries an unforgivable curse on Bellatrix and Order the Phoenix, it doesn't really work. But when he does it later on in book seven, it does work. And he's like, you have to mean it. I think maybe that's Dumbledore's problem is he doesn't want anyone dead. So even though he has the ability to do... Well, he's also probably traumatized from like his sister's death because knowing that he might have killed her, he's probably just like never doing anything like that again. Yeah. yeah. But that could be one of the things for power that Dumbledore doesn't have that Voldemort does could be killing because Dumbledore wouldn't mean it and therefore couldn't make the curse work. Although I find it interesting how the wording in this is incredibly similar to the prophecy, which is he will have powers the Dark Lord knows not, which in the prophecy is referring to love and Albus loves him some love magic. So maybe he's the one who actually has power that Voldemort will never have. Mm -hmm. All right, moving forward, how does this chapter work with the rest of the series? Does it still hold up to this day? Uh, Well, I find it interesting that this chapter sort of stands out uniquely because of the fact that it's from Vernon's perspective. It's one of the only few chapters that aren't from Harry's Mm -hmm. perspective. There is a few chapters in the Harry Potter. It's usually at the beginning of the book where there's occasionally there'll be a different point of view. I know there's Vernon in this chapter and I know they do the other minister in Half-Blood Prince. They... And then they have the uh, housekeeper in... Uh... Of Fire. And then we have yeah. Voldemort and his Death Eaters in the beginning of uh, Deathly Hallows. But usually at the beginning of the chapter is just Harry going over his life, refreshing people on what happened to him and that he's a wizard. But yeah, this is like the beginning. So we kind of get like... It's our first time we really kind of get the Dursleys without it being through Harry's eyes. Yeah. I mean, it's the only, it's the first time we get anything because it's yeah. the first chapter. The beginning. Which is very interesting because the way Harry is depicted in this chapter, he's not even a character. He's an object, which I think is very interesting and definitely foreshadows how Harry is treated, sort of like a pawn throughout the series, specifically by good old Dumbledore, but then also in book five by Voldemort. Yep. By a lot of people, too. Like, the Dursleys, too. He's, like, an object that they have to deal with and they don't want. And they're just kind of shuffling their, him around in their life and just kind of, like, dealing with him. I also find that it's a unique for a chapter because usually nothing really significant happens to Harry until he gets to Hogwarts. But his arrival at the Dursleys is such a distinctive and important event. And it happens so early on, and then I find that it is brought full circle well in book seven when he departs from the Dursley's house. Yes. I would say maybe this chapter, out of all of the chapters, is the one that transitioned the best to film. Yes. I feel like when I watch the screen adaptation, I I don't feel any loss in the things that they cut out, like Vernon's boring day. And I feel like the actual moment where Harry arrives is perfect. Yeah, it definitely works well. I think this being the first chapter and stuff, I don't remember the first time I read this book, like, what I was thinking, but I was just wondering, just this chapter, would it, if you hadn't read Harry Potter before, would you be interested to continue reading after reading this chapter? I would. Uh, I, I like that there's a bit of a mystery behind it, like, who is this child and why is he so important? Uh, I like magic, so the fantasy nerd in me is automatically excited about this. And there's like a wise talking cat that comes across as so wholesome. Uh, 
I can't imagine me in any state of my life reading this chapter and not wanting to read the next one. Yeah, this book was published in 1998, I think. So it's almost like, it's over 20 years since it's been out into the world. So it's definitely interesting to see like what parts of the book will still hold up in our society today and which parts probably don't. Quite a few, but it's... uh. It's a good first chapter. It's a very good first chapter, I would say. Yeah, I definitely always, when I reread the series, when I, if I start the first book, the first chapter always gives me so much feels and everything, because like, you just, especially because I read it as a kid, you just have all those memories associated with reading the book as a child that you still feel that like childhood like wonder and comfort. I feel like familiar books are feel the same as familiar places. So when you open the first page of a book, that is has sort of like a safe, happy, familiar place for you, you feel like you've gone somewhere else. Opening the page of the book is like opening a door, and it just feels so wholesome and cozy when you just start getting nestled down into this whole new place that you've missed. Like, it's just so comforting, I guess. Yes. Like a warm cup of tea on a rainy afternoon. <laughs> Do you have any other uh, final closing remarks you want to make about chapter one? Not really. I definitely want to keep an eye going forward, but Dumbledore's motivations and how much he was pulling the strings from the very beginning and then definitely in the next few chapters we'll definitely be doing more on the Dursleys and how awful they are and more about Harry as a as a character and not this baby object that, that has no like relevance really in the first chapter he's just spoken about yeah it's an interesting flip I love when the chapter ends and you go on to chapter two and you get that switch in perspective from like this is the thing we're talking about to hello I am that thing you were talking about <laughs> Before we sign off, there is something important that we need to address. The JK Rowling problem. Both Shay and I have written our own statements about the Harry Potter author with our own experiences and feelings on the matter, but I would like to state that we 100% do not stand with her statements on the trans community. Trans lives matter. The Harry Potter community is diverse and spread across the world. It is for everyone, no matter what. However, we are not a part of this community, so we cannot speak for this community. We can only speak on our feelings and our personal experiences. Here is my statement. Growing up, I used to think very highly of JK Rowling. I used to tag her as queen of everything on my old Tumblr blog. That is what Harry Potter was to me. Everything. From reading the series in elementary school to even middle and high school, I felt I defined myself by being a Harry Potter fan. It was a huge part of my personality and honestly losing that part of myself was scary. I found it difficult to speak badly or even think badly of the Harry Potter author even if I didn't agree with her. I remember being upset about the interview where she appeared to say she regretted the Ron and Hermione pairing, which was my all-time favorite ship at the time, and I felt so conflicted about it. I always felt odd and unwarranted as she created the series and the world that changed my life and at times was my lifeline. These feelings continued with Cursed Child and Fantastic Beasts despite not liking either works. I still couldn't allow myself to call for criticism to it, especially for Cursed Child as I made excuses for it, but now I can no longer stand aside and ignore it. What JK Rowling said about the trans community is wrong. Her using her platform to spread misinformation and lies about the community is wrong. I don't think what she has created, the Harry Potter universe, and everyone who has found something meaningful in it, should be thrown out. I would like to use this opportunity to open up a conversation with this amazing group of people in this community about something that we all loved. 
and look at it at, through a more critical lens, as it is not a perfect series and it has fault. I personally loved what Daniel Radcliffe had to say on the subject. I will quote a snippet of what he said in his statement now, but you can find the full statement linked in our description. If you found anything in these stories that resonate with you and helped you at any time in your life, then that is between you and the book that you read, and it is sacred. And in my opinion, nobody can touch that. It means to you what it means to you, and I hope that these comments will not taint that too much. I also stand by this quote that I found in Goblet of Fire on page 596. We have reached the parting of the ways. You must act as I see fit, and I, I should act as I see fit. I would like to be a part of a new era of the Harry Potter community. This franchise would be nothing with the fandom's contributions and community. I personally do not want to let the author taint a diverse and creative community of people from across the globe with different upbringings, cultures, and viewpoints. She may have created this universe, but she did not create this community. We did it, and I am perfectly fine with excluding her from it. So this is my statement on the author. So J.K. Rowling wrote some great books. I bought them. I paid for them. She got her money. I owe her nothing. She wrote and published seven books that, for me, tell the story of friendship and acceptance. I love the books, and they mean a lot to me but I no longer see J.K. Rowling in the same light that I once did. She's been spewing hateful, harmful, hurtful things. Some of these are damaging to a community that has already been through enough. Trans women are women, trans men are men. She should not be using her platform as an author of a fantasy series, as the high ground from which to hurt people she doesn't know and doesn't understand. I'm mad at her. Frankly, growing up, the books provided a safe and happy place for me to go when things got tough. When real life was hard, I'd escape to Hogwarts. Hogwarts felt like my home. I doubt J.K. Rowling stopped to think about how many trans men and women also thought of Hogwarts as their home. She's probably ruined that for a lot of people. She wrote the last book 13 years ago. Between now and then, the fans have written countless fan fictions and analyses. There are immeasurable headcanons and YouTube channels and podcasts that talk about Harry Potter. So if in losing respect for the author, you don't want to lose love for the story, I'm right there with you. I'm hoping the fandom can be welcoming and inclusive, where the author would be discriminatory, and that we can do our part to make Hogwarts the home and Harry Potter a community where people feel accepted and valued. I think that Hermione Jean Granger, of all people, would never allow the circumstances of one's birth to limit how they're able to live their lives. That's all for us for now. We will be back again to discuss Chapter 2 of Philosopher's Stone, The Vanishing Glass, if you have any thoughts on today's episode or would like to share your thoughts or theories on future chapters of Philosopher's Stone, feel free to email us at potterrevisitedpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach us across social media at Potter Revisited. Thank you for listening and we hope you'll continue to tune in. Bye!